0: Hello and welcome to the Mick Busson Podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project-to-product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, Chief Technology Officer of PlanView and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with a flow framework. Joining me today is an amazing business leader, Mark Field. As the former presidency of Ford Motor Company, Mark has presided over three decades of strategic and digital transformations at global businesses. Prior to his CEO role, Mark was chairman of the premier automotive group, which included Lincoln, Aston Martin, Jaguar, Land Rover, and Volvo cars. And prior to that, Mark had become the youngest person ever to run a major Japanese company when Ford placed him in charge of Mazda in 1998. Mark is now a senior advisor to TPG Capital and a member of Planview's Board of Directors. And thanks to that role, I have had the opportunity to work with Mark on our mission of connecting strategy and work across organizations. I am absolutely thrilled that Mark has taken the time to join the podcast and to share with us his amazing journey and the many lessons that he has learned over the years, which I think are incredibly relevant to the challenges and opportunities that we are facing today. So with that, let's get started. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the Project to Project podcast. It is, it is just so great to have you here.
1: Well, I couldn't be more excited about spending some time with you, Mick.
0: All right. And, you know, you and I have had some conversations uh, just over the past few weeks. And it's just been amazing to get a perspective from you of, of what you've accomplished in your career and how, of course, everything that you've created is now shifting more to digital, as, as well as actually the, the companies that you're supporting, shifting more to digital and to software. And I would just love us to start the conversation with with you know the earlier steps in your career, because I think a lot of us listening to this podcast have been fascinated by what, what happened in Japan around co- the concepts of lean. And you, in fact, were the youngest uh, CEO ever of a major Japanese company. So if you could just take us back and tell a bit of that story before we start talking supply chains and ECUs and other fun topics. Absolutely.
1: Well, you know, I... I grew up in the New York, New Jersey area, and uh, when I came out of business school, I uh, was either going to go into tech because prior to business school, I had worked at IBM, and uh, I had you know a number of offers from a number of the tech companies, uh, mainly the the hardware tech companies, but a couple of software tech companies, and an offer from Ford Motor Company. And uh, you know, I always loved cars, and I went out there to Detroit for a visit. I'd never been to Detroit before. And I was really impressed with the, with the people and the organization. And I also kind of held the thought that somewhere down the road that cars were going to become very much like computers. Um, now, interestingly, I spent about 30 years at Ford, and probably that didn't happen until about the last, oh, plus or minus 10 years, but it eventually did happen. But one of the things I had the opportunity early in my career to do was to go uh, and work overseas. And I didn't have a master plan of, hey, here's how I want my career to kind of unfold. Uh, I just took the approach of uh, very simply, I always ran to the fire. And what I mean by that was I always went to the assignments that, let's say, weren't very popular or had a lot of challenges in front of them, because my philosophy was I would learn a lot. And if it was successful, it would help my career. If it wasn't successful, well, I would have learned a lot. <laughs> and so uh, it. one of the assignments, uh, I first went to Argentina. Uh, and then from there, I went to Mazda, first as the global uh, marketing and sales director. And I was living in Hiroshima, Japan. And then a year later, I was named CEO of the company. And uh, a lot of that had to do with, you know, no master plan. But you know, looking at opportunities where I could really kind of learn and grow and take on challenges. And uh, that's how I ended up overseas. And that's how I ended up in Japan. It was a wonderful experience.
0: And so this is around 2000. So around the dot com bubble.
1: Yeah, I, I, I came to, to Mazda back in uh, 98. So it was, you know, Japan had been in the doldrums for quite some time uh economically and when i joined mazda we we actually were almost uh, almost bankrupt because we had tried to copy the strategies of nissan and toyota who were much bigger had much more resources so it was a little it was a case of our eyes were bigger than our stomachs in terms of what we could actually execute and so you know i was sent out there to first sort out the sales and marketing situation and then secondly how could we put together a profitable growth plan uh, going forward.
0: So you put together the, the turnaround for Mazda around this time.
1: Well, yeah, I, I let it, but let me be really clear. You only get things done through teams, through committed teams. And, you know, it's very interesting being a, what's called a gaijing, which is a foreigner going into Japan. You know, I couldn't just come in, you know, guns aplazing saying, Hey, here's my plan and I want you all to follow. Um, you know, my philosophy is always to first get the wisdom of uh, uh, the management team and then put a plan together that we all own. So it doesn't become Mark Field's plan. It becomes the Mazda senior leadership plan. And that was kind of difficult in Japan because it took me the first six months to just figure out communication styles, thinking styles, which are very different from the West. But what I essentially did was take my, 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 my board, which was an internal board of just senior uh, uh, Mazda managing directors, of which there were about 20 of them, and I spent a number of weekends with them off-site, just uh, marinating them and ourselves in the reality of our situation. And it, it was really important to do that because in traditional Japanese companies, the organizations are very siloed. So if the manufacturing managing director is doing his job, then, well, the company should have profit. Or if the product development head is doing their job, then the company should have profit. But, you know, the, the, yeah. running an organization, there's many, many different elements of that that contribute to success. And so getting all of the management team fully educated on the business overall was really important and kind of counterintuitive culturally. For the Japanese, but uh, as we went through that, we developed a plan. I had a point of view, right? Because at the end of the day, and in my view, when you lead, it should be a uh, participatory process, but not necessarily always a democratic one. And we ended up with a, a plan that, first and foremost, was based on great product, and uh, the team rallied around that and executed, and we uh, we did quite well and put the company back on a firm footing.
0: I think that's fascinating because we've got a lot of organizations obviously listening now who are trying to figure out how to transform, right? And the transformation is not, it's not a siloed activity. It's not like one function is misfiring. It's their market conditions. As you said, Mazda had their strategy was, did not match uh, the market at that point in time. So can you take us maybe through a little bit more detail on, because I think you've applied this repeatedly through your career, and I can imagine how to, in, a, in a more hierarchical organization, this this would definitely be much harder. I think we're seeing in the industry today all these divides and functional divides between business and technology and operations and so on, and a lot of people looking at how they can actually rally their company around transforming in a way that, that meets what the market needs today. So, right. you know, this must have been a massive undertaking given just entrenched labor costs and product lines and so on I do and Mark if you could actually because I've heard you say this multiple times in in the past is this kind of this product as a focus for how you're doing that if you could speak a bit more to it because I think so often in these transformations we're seeing just purely cost cutting as a focus right uh, or just purely changing the sourcing strategy of those those sorts of things Mm -hmm. I'm sure you were dealing with all of those factors but somehow you succeeded with a focus on product so could you speak a bit more to that
1: well, I think, you know, whatever businesses that you're in the product or service, that's how you get customers. And I think as a company, you must always understand that. And, and you know, because at the end of the day, if you don't have customers, then you're not going to be a successful enterprise period. And so, you know, when it came to the, uh, the turnaround at Mazda, you know, of course, elements of that has to be cost cutting, but you can't cost cut your way to profitable growth. You have to have a very strong point of view of what I call where to play and how to win with your product or service. And so what I did with my team, as I said, is I did something very unusual. Uh, I took a siloed organization and I stuck them all in rooms for multiple weekends, the senior leaders, all getting educated on the complete business and also understanding what were the things that we were really good at? in product and in Mazda there was a Japanese term that meant uh, a oneness between the driver and the road Mm. and our engineers were were world-class in delivering the feel the driving feel of the road directly through uh, the steering wheel into the input for the driver. And that really became the core for us of what it differentiates us versus a Toyota or a Nissan or any other OEM, uh, because those were the things that made us successful in the past with our customers. So, you know, in any business, you have to find that thing that you are really good at and what you think can differentiate you versus the competition. And so from there, we developed, I'll give you an example back in the, the day. There's a product today called the Mazda 3. And the old version of that was a very mundane kind of appliance-like product. And we had gotten away from our roots, as I said, to compete with the Toyotas and the Nissans and the Hondas of the world, where we just wanted volume. And we lost that product feel. And I can tell you story after story, and all the brands i've had the, the good fortune to run whether it's mazda or jaguar or land rover or ford etc where we always had to refocus on what were the things that really differentiated our brand versus others and the things that customers value and so we put a plan together that had you know one part great product development with a product pipeline that was able to deliver on our promise our brand promise and one part cost reduction, right? Cause we needed to get more efficient. We had grown, uh, you know, fat so to speak from our, our costs. And the other was, uh, you know, organization. How are we gonna organize to succeed? And I guess I'll just finish with, you know, you know what's it, it, it's also very important to have a rallying cry in in, in every cus every company. In Mazda's case, the, the the product that was the pride of of the engineers, going back way back when when we won uh, Le Mans, was the rotary engine. Right, and right. and that was a pride point. That was a pride point for the entire organization. And so, out of this expertise that we had with, you know, the driver of one with the road, we came up with a uh, brand tagline called Zoom Zoom. Yes, which translates into every language around the world. And that was the rallying cry and that was our go-to-market strategy that delivered, uh, that we had product that delivered on that brand promise. So clarity is so important, getting that management team together, breaking down silos, showing them the reality of the business, showing them how the business makes money, how we grow customers. Everybody gets a common understanding and then developing a plan that delivers on that and that every senior manager can own.
0: And with, so, is the, so you, you must have helped the team and you being a key part of it develop this unified product vision around. And, and I remember Zoom, I think a lot of us remember and, and appreciate the Zoom Zoom as well as the RX-6 and others um, and what a marvel of, of engineering that was. So that's fascinating. So you, you were able to connect that unified vision back to the, the roots that the engineers related to.
1: Yeah, and and you know, I really uh, worked with the product development team for them to codify, right? What what were the things that we were from an engineering standpoint that allowed us to deliver this oneness with the road that the other OEMs uh, weren't able to do? And interestingly, the other thing that you know, it, this was very unnatural for the Japanese managing directors, because when you get to a certain level. In a Japanese company, like a managing director, you know, you spend more of your time on, you know, maybe strategy, or you don't. You're not really in the in the day to day and getting your hands dirty in the operations. I kind of turned that on its head for for our organization where we, you know, I had terrific managing directors that you know I really reoriented them to to getting back directly into the business. And the way I approached it was it was, I spent some time trying to get culturally literate. And I can't say I'm an expert on Japanese culture, having only spent four years living there. But the thing that's really important to them is legacy. And what I posed to them was, listen, what legacy do you want the next generation uh, of Mazda workers to think about the company and our customers to think about us? And so, you know, it's part appealing to the, I always mix this up, the left and right side of the brain, but whichever one is the rational one, I try to appeal to that side, right, with educating them on the business and what the realities were if we did not turn the company around. And the other side of the brain that controls, you know, creativity and emotions, and that was really around accessing this importance of legacy uh, for the Japanese culture and building on something to leave for the next generation.
0: Wow, and then and how did so somehow from this that you mentioned the Mazda three program? So how did mm-hmm. how did that accelerate things? Well,
1: it was it was interesting. We um, we had a, uh, a a slogan that basically said no boring car, and uh, you know that was that led to so many interesting uh, kind of product trade offs. You know, for example, um, when you look at the design of the vehicle. And you look at the where the the hood uh, the rear of the of the of the uh, uh, hood meets to the trunk, and you know you could have a uh, a back seat with lots of headroom, and it looks kind of square or boxish, or you can have more of a rake to it, which you know maybe it it compromises headroom a little bit in the rear, but boy, it makes that design a lot more uh, dynamic and appealing. And so we developed from there a guidelines around our design, not only, you know, what does the front end or the front grill look like, but what do we want the silhouette of the vehicle to look like? And, um, you know, so we codified a lot of things, whereas before it was a little bit of seat of the pants and we didn't want to codify it so much that it became cookie cutter because, you know, you want the engineers and the designers to have a degree of flexibility to use their creativity, but you don't want them coloring outside the lines all the time so that you end up with a product lineup that has no relation to one another and right. it doesn't look like a family. Um, so it, it, those were some of the things that we did to the team with the team. And importantly, we spent a lot of time at the, uh, the development track to benchmark versus the competition and ensure that our product really delivered on that brand promise. Uh, consistently,
0: and again, the, the, so the parallels just are just amazing, right? Because obviously, technolog- tech giants already have these these design guidelines, th- these design systems. The successful even mid sized tech companies and unicorns have put them in place as well. And I think this is something that's just emerging in enterprises today. But again, something that, that you clearly proved out uh, was key. So this this focus on product. The interesting thing about the Mazda three, and I, I have vague recollections of this of it actually because. In this, in our the technology ecosystem, products are key. And I think understanding product thinking, embracing product thinking and creating these, these customer-driven missions like like Zoom Zoom is, is as important for digital products. The other thing that's key is platforms, right? So I think maybe we can touch on plants being platforms because it's incredible what you've done to your career on that front. But but you just reminded me that I, I vaguely recall looking at, you know, the first time I saw the C30, the Volvo C30, I thought, wow, that looks like a Mazda 3. And then I started digging into it. And, and there actually are some platform similarities there. I'd love to I've never actually heard that story. I'd love to hear how that came to be because somehow the products you were building seem to have actually turned into platforms.
1: Well, in the, in the auto industry, the platform or the, the, the chassis, what I would call the chassis of the, of the vehicle, um, takes a lot of engineering to develop. Uh, it usually lasts anywhere from 10 to 12 years. And that platform is what the body sits on. And so in the auto industry, scale is so important. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. So when uh, I came back from uh, running Ford of Europe and all our luxury brands to run uh, North America, as we were looking at the company, we had twenty almost 29 different unique platforms across the globe. Oh, wow. And you can imagine the amount of engineering that needs to go into those platforms. So not only does it drive an extreme amount of cost and effort and engineering to keep those platforms, not only develop them, but to keep them fresh, but in the auto industry, scale is everything. So you could imagine the unique parts that went into those 27 different ones, and we could never get scale. So you know what we did was we eventually shrunk the number of platforms in Ford from the 29 it was either 29 or 27 down to when i left i think we had 8 hmm. and and so you could imagine you know the amount of efficiency that you get from that now interestingly and and you know when you when you go with a, 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 a when you go to the organization and say hey we're going to commonize on platforms every part of the Ford world said, yeah, we're all in agreement with that as long as we commonize on our platform. Because they all say, oh, you know, our customers are unique and they have unique, you know, uh, preferences and things of that nature. Well, guess what? What we found was there were a lot more commonality across the world in terms of customer requirements than uniqueness. So we, you know, developed these platforms that were for use, you know, around the world But we did leave a degree of freedom for some, you know, different markets have, you know, different um, uh, driving characteristics. For example, in Europe, the the road system there, et cetera, you really need kind of dynamic uh, driving capabilities in the vehicle uh, and also grippier braking, uh, so to speak. Whereas in the U.S., you know, the roads are are not as not as curvy, so to speak, uh, a lot of straight line driving. And it's okay to actually have a longer uh, braking uh, length than in Europe. So, you know, we left some some capabilities to have, you know, maybe different brakes put on uh, the vehicle and even simple things. I mean, you're going to maybe find this funny, but, you know, when you uh, recline your seat, there's different preferences between U.S. and Europe. For example, in the U.S., people like levers. They like pulling a lever and and the seat goes back. Well, in Europe, they like knobs, they yep. like to turn something. And so we allowed for, you know, some level of customization. But, you know, with the overarching uh, theme of having a, a library of uh, parts for the platform, which were uh, not negotiable because it was so important for, for savings, both from a cost and timing standpoint, but also leaving a degree uh, to allow the product to be customized for the localized needs. And I think that applies to every business these days because, you know, it's all about, you know, how do you get simplicity, whether you're doing a product, a service, software, or whatever, but still being able to deliver for the customer.
0: Yeah, and I think in digital organizations, many are just wrapping their their heads around the importance of these platform economics, right, That, that you saw instantly, of course, I think they might be even more stark when you've got supply chains as, as complex as I can imagine. You would need to support 29 different platforms. So the one, one trend that we're seeing is innovators are basically putting somewhere around half. So technology innovators like the tech giants or, or unicorns around half of their investment to platforms, because of course those that then, then can be repurposed and leveraged in various ways by customer uh, and market facing products. So. Exactly, but Mark, this three platform—if I recall, am I right in recalling that actually span multiple vendors, OEMs as well, like Mazda, Ford, and Volvo?
1: Yeah, yeah. We, we, we. (laughs) As you can imagine, it was an interesting process, right? We getting agreement from uh, the Ford folks, the Volvo folks, and the uh, Mazda folks. But yeah, the Mazda three, the C thirty, the Focus, uh, all came off a uh, common platform. And there were trade-offs in terms of deliverability. but I'll give you one kind of trade-off, which, again, is kind of interesting. So when we were designing kind of the size of the engine bay, we had to make accommodations for Volvo because part of Volvo's brand identity was safety. And so they had very strict requirements on how much space between the engine The engine bay wall that uh, that separates the driver from the engine compartment, and so we had to take that into account, and that was a trade off for all the other brands, Uh, but that was non negotiable for Volvo. So, you know, we agreed to do that. Uh, There were other things that you know got commonized because it didn't deliver for any of the the brand promise of any of of any of the brands, but it allowed for you know commonization of parts and engineering, which you know. Through scale, brought the piece cost down uh, uh, and made the vehicle more affordable and more profitable. I, and and I'll give you another example of where it doesn't work. So when we were developing the Range Rover Sport uh, back in I don't know 2002, 2003, it was suggested from our, our our Ford colleagues that well for that product we should use the Explorer platform. Obviously, Explorer very successful in the U.S. but as we had codified our our product policy and our brand deliverables for Land Rover and Range Rover, we said the ability to climb a mountain or incline at least at a 30 to 35 degree incline was extremely important. Not that majority of our customers ever did that, but that is what was delivered the brand promise for Land Rover. And that also what allowed us to, to price for that. Unfortunately, the Explorer platform didn't have that capability and despite the uh the uh, politicking and suggestions from our Ford colleagues, we decided not to use the Explorer platform because it w- it wouldn't have delivered on that brand promise and customers would have noticed. And you know, you would have taken a uh withdrawal out of the brand bank for uh for the Land Rover and Range Rover brands which we weren't willing to do that brand that product had to deliver on our promise
0: yeah i mean i think that again the parallels are, are so stark because i think value, and this is what we see in effective technology companies they the value streams each of them has a customer mission to fulfill and they they will actually need to divert off platforms of common platforms if they can provide more value and more outcomes uh, through moving off those
1: but that that's also it's a double edged sword right because what i've seen in software companies and i've seen this also you know at ford from a product standpoint is you know customers will tell you how unique they are and they will tell you all the things that they need customized for their business whether it's an erp system or a cad cam system or whatever and a lot of times as you know that drives you know, as a, as a company trying to satisfy customers, you know, we're always, you know, always trying to be as forward leaning as possible to do that. And what you end up with is a lot of engineering that has to take place, a lot of software development, a lot of it unique. And ultimately you might be able to give the customer, you know, a hundred percent of what they want, but you know, the ability then to maintain and update that over time is not only burdensome, burdensome on the company, the software company, but it's hugely burdensome on the customer because they have to pay for that. And so if you ask, you know, the customer the question, you know, do you really need, you know, that particular part of the software uh, customized the way you want, just asking the question and saying, here's the trade-off for that, right? It's either a trade-off in, you know, more affordability, but, you know, in the willingness to please the customer complexity Takes it on the chin, and I think you know. Many times it's as simple way, as simple as asking the customer: Are they willing for those trade offs? And a lot of times, they're not willing, but they're still just as satisfied.
0: Yeah, all I can think of now, Mark, is that that car, the Homer that that Homer Simpson designed, <laughs> <laughs> and we have plenty of digital products that, that look just like that. So <laughs> and have similar rates of adoption. I,
1: yeah, I get it. I I, I remember the. I remember the Simpsons episode on that. I, I was always laughing because, you know, being a car guy, it was like, oh my gosh, they kind of nailed it.
0: <laughs> well, and that, and I think you're speaking of that fundamental tension, which it's the, it's the role of leadership to support of product management, wanting to fulfill the needs of a certain customer uh, or demographic. And of course, that not having the right kind of economies of scale that, that platforms provide and... Right. Exactly. So. Exactly. So let's switch now. Let's actually we can we can keep going on approach angles. That was a that that I no idea that that that's an interesting story the around the sport. Mm-hmm. I do remember when I was looking at I was at the plant in Gaden, uh Jaguar Land Rover, and they were putting together the new Defender, which I, I think has a thirty eight degree approach angle, which is I. Seems awfully steep to me. Um, <laughs> but I, I did have the opportunity to drive around in one of the test vehicles and then go into the, the prototyping facility where they had the Defender completely unfolded and were running all the tests on all the ECUs. So you, know, you could see the wires from the seat heaters and all these things and all these racks of, of testing hardware. And it was, you know, it, it was a very large room. So at that point, they said that you know, it, it was 170 ECUs, I believe, roughly, or 160. That we're going yeah. in, into that new generation of defender, right? I recently heard from BMW Group that that their new uh, i Series, that the M40s and the like, they're they're getting the the IXs now 300 million lines of code. You committed Ford yourself, I think, to to the electrification and, and spending you know, nearly five billion dollars on on these electric vehicles like the Maqui, which have similar, I think, amounts of complexity. So, how can you just take us through? It just seems like such a f- and this is where I think it's really similar to what's happening in tech, right? We used to have all these servers and then data centers, and now so many organizations are needed to completely replatform around cloud yeah and around modern delivery practices like any guidance for how to think of changes as fundamental as what you put forward with the with the maki
1: yeah, I mean you know it's it's a really interesting question because a lot of this gets down to having a point of view on the future and then laying out a what i call a technical cycle plan that gets you to that future that you have a point of view on it may not be right may not be wrong but at least you'll have a point of view on the future and let me give you an example so you know the reason you have so many ecus in uh vehicles today is it's a vestige of how we developed vehicles which was Okay, we'd develop a vehicle, it would have an engine on it, we'd have a number of ECUs. When we wanted to add features, you know, additional features, whether it's, you know, variable speed control, or um, parking sensors, or heated seats, or name the features over time that we would add, the answer to that, given the, the electrical system we had, was, well, just add an ECU. And so that's how you ended up with you know, vehicles today that have wiring harnesses in them that look like, you know, alien because they're they're, they're big, they're thick, they have, you know, so many different wires coming out of them with the connectors that you need, et cetera. It's a little bit of, uh, you know, a spaghetti junction, so to speak. But a lot of that had to do with the history on, you know, how we developed vehicles. Now what's happening, and to your point, and I think I give Tesla a lot of credit for this because they took a central compute approach to the vehicle. And of course, that requires um, a lot less ECUs, a lot less less wiring harnesses. And so what you're starting to see now is all of the automakers come out with new electrical architectures that actually are taking a central compute approach. And this is where if we would have had a point of view, let's say 10 years ago, that, hmm, there's going to be more and more features added to vehicles, put aside that we weren't even thinking about electrification at the time, combined with the fact that we knew that software was going to increase in terms of the content of the vehicle. I mean, 10 years ago, the average vehicle probably had less than a million lines of code. To your point that you mentioned earlier, a lot of vehicles now have anywhere from you know, two 200 to 300 million lines of code. And it's only going to go up. Which is
0: more than our uh, laptops, by the way. I think I think Mac yeah. OS and, yeah. and Windows 10 or 11 are still under 40, 50. It,
1: exactly. I mean, you're going from mechanical brakes to and steering to drive-by-wire, right? Yeah. And so, you know, software plays a really important right. piece in that. But if we had a point of view on the future, we probably would have come to the conclusion that, you know what? This is unsustainable to continue to add ECUs to uh, a system that's already complex. And so the lesson learned there is, you know, anybody looking at, you know, their product or service today and looking at the macro trends and saying, based on those macro trends, what do we think a, a technical plan is going to be necessary to deliver for those customers in the future? You will get earlier to make those decisions than later. And that's what's happening with the auto industry right now. They're in the middle. Of this transition of changing uh, electrical architectures, because just adding ECUs, some vehicles have upwards of almost a thousand ECUs. That, believe it or that's,
0: not, that's really hard to believe.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and you know that's just it's it's unsustainable in terms yeah. of complexity and uh, software development.
0: Yeah, and I think it's electronic control units for for those not familiar with it. But I think again, it's it's history rhyming in terms of what's happening in digital where people are lifting and shifting applications into the clouds. These virtual machine images are like the ECUs and it's all just becoming a tangled mess. So, And probably just like in the car, I do remember when with the growth of ECUs, there became concern that especially in electric platforms, it would just consume too much power. (laughs) Uh, This is turning into very big AWS bills and, (laughs) and, and, uh, and Azure bills for organizations who've not thought about their point of view and what their platform should look like.
1: You know, that's a really great point, right? Because in the car business, when you look at electrification, we look at how how can we save every joule of energy in the vehicle, right? Because it's all about range for the customer, et cetera. And even down to what kind of tires, what's the rolling resistance on the tires, right? So that you you know, you you make the vehicle as efficient as possible. You know, it's the same thing as you said, as you if you cut and paste from, let's say, an on-prem. To a, a SaaS solution that sits in AWS or Azure or whatever, you're going to be eating up a lot of uh, usage, which costs money. Whereas, you know, there's that old saying, you know, you, you have to, in, in periods of self-reflection in any business you're in, there's that old saying that said, if you weren't in this business to begin with, what would you do? And I think that's that's a really heavy question, but one that Uh, A lot of execs don't ask themselves, particularly in light of the macro trends that they see, because, you know, sometimes there's realities, right? There's how much would it cost to replatform something? Right. A lot of money. And, you know, particularly if you're a public company and you're trying to meet, you know, earnings guidelines, et cetera, it's tough to make those decisions. But you have to look at it. It's not a one-year decision. But a, almost a three to five year decision for the future of the company, and then the decisions become easier and easier to explain to investors, et cetera.
0: Yeah, and this is this is what strikes me that without that point of view on what the future is, I think you know I, I was at the Detroit Auto Show, I had a chance to speak with my colleague Renata Estrada, who's one of the characters and or the main character in Project the Product, and. You know, we walked around the floor and it really did seem like a lot of old architectures, right? It, it was like the equivalent of BlackBerry phones rather than, than iPhones and, and <laughs> new, new platforms with new digital experiences. And I, I, It's difficult, right? Because Tesla got a fresh start mm-hmm. and they have demonstrated the value of, a, of a, a centralized platform running on one general purpose computer. Demonst- one of the most amazing things I witnessed, that I think, around that or the most poignant was when they, it helped them navigate the chip shortage. To be able to create workarounds in software to deal with <laughs> exactly. with chip charges they were, they were seeing in hardware. So, or so
1: ordering a vehicle, or ordering a vehicle without the heated seat because they took it out because they needed to save the EC. Yep,
0: yeah. I, the the <laughs> lumbar the model threes don't have lumbar control or something like that because those ECU's weren't yeah. around. But they had the telemetry from the digital platform hmm. to know that those don't get used as much, right? So
1: that's that's such an important point, right? There's you know, in the in the car business, uh, we we have something called the low take rate uh, list, which in any vehicle, you know, cars tend to be, they, we, the industry has tried to simplify over time, but the buildable combinations for any given model is quite complex, you know, because, you know, when you think it's a great idea to add a certain feature, but the feature is taken on less than 5% of the orders, that's telling you something. And I think the same thing applies in the software business as well. And you know, fundamentally, having that kind of plan, do, check, act loop, right, to really understand how your customers are using your product, and have you over-engineered it, have you under-engineered it, or something in between, is a really important hygiene factor.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's that power of digital. Like one of the Ian Cockroft, I think one of the foremost cloud architects I know, created the Netflix cloud architecture. He said, "There's only one reason cloud's important, and it's it's to." Remove constraints in your plan, do, check, act loop, or, or your OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act loop. Like You know, the same idea. We've got fast feedback from what's being used, what's not being used, across your in, entire digital portfolio. So the, I guess the power of putting that into uh, in, into physical platforms now is is just in, incredible, as, as Tesla has done. And I guess you would yeah, know, having, absolutely. I, I believe you may have more bought more Teslas than anyone on the planet with that with that 100,000 Tesla order.
1: <laughs> yeah, it hurts. Yeah, we uh, we wanted to take a first mover advantage and uh, and show that we could electrify the rental car fleets. But, and it's also about being a first mover and learning how to manage electrified fleets. fleets. And, you know, that's another lesson learned for any business, which is, again, we took a point of view on the future. And we said, you know, the industry and consumers are going towards electrification. How do we get out in front of it? Not only from a consumer standpoint, but also just learnings, because you know there's learnings along the way that could provide you uh, quite a competitive advantage um, over others by being there first and and learning from your mistakes, right? I mean I, I, I joked with you before, you know I have lots of experience, and the experience is the name I give my mistakes, so I, I have lots of those, and, and the key is learning from them and not repeating.
0: yeah, wow. But yeah, now Hertz will have a fundamental advantage in understanding how to manage electrical fleets that, that no one else exactly. Would. Yeah. So yeah, first mover in learning, that's, that's fascinating. So t- and tell us, Mark, now, because you're, you're now on the board of some amazing companies like Qualcomm, like Tanium. So these, these very digital companies, in, including PlanView. So tell us more about how, what that's been like, applying everything you've learned and all your mistakes <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to, to helping digital companies thrive.
1: Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, it's it's making sure, again, getting back to what I mentioned earlier, that you have a very clear strategy to win. And, you know, I uh, it, it gets back to the fundamental question I mentioned earlier, which is understanding where to play and how to win. And many times you'll pick as a company the where to play, uh, and they won't ask the second question, right, on how to win or what do you have to believe? for us to be successful. And so as I look at, you know, the companies that I have the the good fortune uh, and the honor of sitting on the boards now, it really comes down to clarity around that. I mean, obviously in Qualcomm's case, terrific engineering, uh, terrific organization that is continually to innovate in in modems and uh, SOC chips and things of that nature. And, you know, looking to expand that beyond just handsets, right? They're, they're growing in automotive, they're growing in IoT, et cetera. But, you know, really understanding that they're not just a supplier to the handset business, they are, they're connecting to the intelligent edge now. And, and so understanding that strategy and clarity around it, and then building your bets around that. You can't do everything. In, in a lot of companies, the, the hardest thing is not what you're going to do. The hardest thing is what you're not going to do. Um, and that really gets down to resources and capability, resources, manpower and financial and then capabilities. And so, you know, those things transcend any business, whether it's a technology focused business, a manufacturing business, et cetera. But, you know, it's also then organizing for success around that. You know, if you were in a business that was, you know, primarily in, you know, one area, let's say in Qualcomm's case, the handset area, and we're looking to grow in these adjacency areas, whether it's IoT or automotive, et cetera, sometimes you then have to organize fundamentally differently because it gets back to that great saying from Peter Drucker, the management guru, uh, who said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? and structure has to follow strategy not the other way around so you know we've had to make changes in the qualcomm organization to to represent that same thing in the hertz business right we were you know we're developing you know the mobile app is core to our strategy going forward so hiring the talent in application software development which was not you know not a, a core competency of Hertz. We've had to not only attract and, and recruit differently, but we've had to organize differently around, you know, how to how to be successful on the strategy that we've decided on.
0: Yeah, and I think that point because I think we hear so many people talk about that culture and understand that culture, but not to, not put in place the organizational structure to support the the strategy, which then enables the culture, right? Because if if your mobile team is off in a corner in the bowels of IT under finance somewhere. They're, they're not a first-class citizen, as I think we've seen in many places.
1: It, exactly, and the culture thing, you know, to me, it's, it's very simple about communication. You know, uh, I'll give you an example. When we were at Ford and we made a lot of the investments in electrification and autonomy, you know, I spent a tremendous amount of time communicating to the organization and giving them context as to why. You know, for example, why were we taking budgets away from our traditional ice business and putting it towards this electrification? Because in the absence of giving them context, you know, people say, hey, you know, they react negatively to that, right? Because you're taking resources away from it. versus educating them on, you know, what is our point of view in the future? What are the big macro trends? And then communicating to them, this is not moving from an old business to a new business. This is just moving to a bigger business and putting those things into context for people is so important. And you literally have to just over communicate. And it doesn't mean, you know, you give the speech once and everybody gets it. You have to give it over and over and over again so the organization has context and can understand where the company is heading, uh, where they want to be successful so that it doesn't become a zero sum game for every single department in the
0: company. Right, Mark. That's amazing. We we are at time. I have. I think I'm basically uh, a tenth of the way through my questions for you. (laughs) So to be continued at some point, I hope. But any 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 closing thoughts for listeners?
1: The only closing thoughts are: Listen, you know, we're you know the clock speed of the economy, consumers, geopolitics, everything is 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 so much faster now. And the ability to be, and I know the, the term is over, overused, the ability to be agile, the ability to understand changes in the outside world and what does that mean for your business or your department or whatever is really important. And, you know, we're going to be going into, you know, a, 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 a tough economic environment, in my view, over the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, probably anybody under the age of uh, 35 has not been through one. And that's why some of the things that I mentioned be, become so crucial to, to understand the context of what is going on in the outside world for your particular company or department being really clear on where, where you're heading and what it takes to be successful and understanding that you have that North Star because listen, there's gonna be good days where you take two steps forward and you and your teams are gonna feel great. And there's gonna be days where you take two steps backwards and you're gonna to wanna to put your head through the wall but you can't live in the day. You have to have that destination in mind and know that you're going to have great days of getting there and you're going to have some challenging ones, but you're directionally heading in
0: the right direction. And and to your point on, on structuring for success, right? If the chain, pace of change, I guess it's Jack Welsh and, and we further, uh, the plan we see a result mentioned this on, on this podcast, actually, it's if the pace of change outside the organization exceeds inside. You're dying. You're dying. So, and yeah. Yeah. But, Mark, thank you so, so much. That was just amazing. And, and I think we're all very appreciative to you sharing your your wisdom and your insights and your your mistakes <laughs> with us. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mick. Okay. Thank you to Mark Fields for sharing some of his amazing expertise with us today. For more, follow me on my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MickPlusOne or Project Product. You can also find Mark on LinkedIn. I have a new episode every few weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project the Product to get the book. And remember, that all of our proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Also, don't forget to join the Flow Framework community on Slack, which you can find on flowframework.org. Until next time.